following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Good morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning. We are in the last part of 2 Timothy. I feel like we're saying goodbye to an old friend because we've been pulling from this book for quite a while, but this will be our last Sunday. It's not going to take us to the exact last verse of 2 Timothy because the last couple verses are kind of these salutations and, hey, say hi to Bob kind of thing. And so we're going to finish with kind of the last section that's really meaty in terms of instructional. So I know we've talked about this before, but keep in mind, this is Paul writing a personal letter to Timothy. It's not a letter he was writing to a church or to a group of house churches. He's got Timothy. He was mentoring. This is Paul in jail. It seems clear as we were reading this, he knows he is about to die. He's already apparently being tortured. And he's giving his final instructions to Timothy, his spiritual son. And these are the last three paragraphs that he's giving. So this is, as far as I know, the last communication that Paul has with Timothy. And it's an interesting passage. Um, it is possible that we won't get through all of my notes this morning. We'll see, because even though it's just three paragraphs, there's a lot to unpack. So I'm going to read the section, and then we'll dive right into it. We're beginning in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Come to me, Timothy, as soon as you can. You see, Demas, having loved this present age has abandoned me, and he's headed off to Thessalonica. Crescens took off for Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke is the only one left. Bring Mark with you because he's useful to this work and will help look after me. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. On your way here, pick up the cloak I left with Carpus and Troas and bring the scrolls, especially the parchments. Keep your eye out for Alexander the coppersmith. He came against me with all sorts of evil. The Lord will render him according to his works. By the way, depending on the translation you have, that phrase might be translated as may the Lord, almost as if it's an imprecatory kind of thing where you're asking God to judge him. I don't think that's the best translation based on what I've, based on what I've seen. I think the best translation is simply Paul acknowledging God will take care of Alexander. God will reward him according to his works. So watch your back, because he has gone overboard to oppose our message. When it was time for my first defense, no one showed up to support me. Everyone abandoned me. May it not be held against them, except the Lord. He stood by me, strengthened me, and backed the truth I proclaimed with power, so that it may be heard by all the non-Jews. He rescued me, pried open the lion's jaw. That is probably a reference to one of the Roman rulers. Paul, as a Roman citizen, would not have been thrown to wild animals to be killed. Um, so this is probably a reference to someone who was in political power. He rescued me, pried open the lion's jaw, and snatched me from its teeth. And I know the Lord will continue to rescue me from every trip, snare, trap, and pitfall of evil, and carry me safely to his heavenly kingdom. May he be glorified throughout eternity. Amen. So that's it. That's the last really meaty part of what Paul communicates to Timothy in this life. 
Now, we're going to look at two people who get discussed a lot in this passage, and that's Alexander and Demas. We're not going to spend a lot of time on Alexander, but we're going to come back to him at the end, so I just want to make sure that we're on the same page about this. There are three possibilities about who Alexander is. Alexander was a common name at the time. You find lots of references to Alexander's. So one possibility is that he's mentioned in 1 Timothy, and he's the Alexander who was with a dude named Hymenaeus, who Paul told them to hand over to Satan because they were so disruptive. And if I understand that phrase correctly, that's basically Paul saying you need to kick them out of the church, out from under the cover of the spiritual authority that the church was giving them. You need to get them out of your midst. They were false teachers. Or it could have been a Jewish leader who was involved in accusations against Paul that we read about in Acts chapter 19, or it could have been another Alexander, right? So all three of these are real possibilities. The bottom line is this. We know that one thing Alexander did was come against the message that Paul was preaching and that he did him harm. And that Paul, his response to this isn't a response of vengeance, and we'll get to that later. Paul just says, um, God will judge him. Uh, basically, Timothy, you don't have to, but watch out for him. He's a danger. Demas is the one who gets really interesting. And I should note, where I hope to end by the end of the message today is looking at the different ways that people have tried to understand what was happening with Alexander and Demas, and then talk about the complexities of life together in the kingdom, because you can reach really different conclusions about the two of them. Uh, so I hope I get to the end of it today. Like I said, if I don't, we'll do it next week. So here's what everyone agrees about with Demas. He was a co-worker of Paul for a long time. He's mentioned in the same breath as Luke and Mark. Apparently there was another time when Paul was in prison and Demas stayed in prison with him. So there is a fairly long and glorious history of Demas's involvement in Paul's life. They were, they were doing work together. The second thing that everyone agrees about is that Demas loved this present age. Your translation might say loved this present world or simply say the world. My understanding is the best way to, to translate it is that he loved this present age because it's contrasting with this Jewish idea that there was this present age and then there was the age to come. This present age is characterized by hardship, by trials, by tears, by suffering. And the Jews were longing for the age to come when things would be made right. So even before Jesus arrives and begins to talk about the future heavenly kingdom of the new heaven and the new earth, there was a, a, a very long history in the Jewish tradition. There's this age, there will be another age. We long for the age to come. So we know that Demas loved this age. But it's at that point that people's ideas about how to understand this begin to diverge. And I'm going to explore these divergences this morning. And I want to note something. What I'm exploring are open-hand issues. There will be nothing that we're exploring here that will shake your theological foundations or challenge something like this. This is just different people are trying to wrestle with who was Demas and what was going on here. And as I was looking at it this, this past week or two, I found myself reading one thing and going, that's really convincing. I think this is probably how I should talk to y'all about what Demas was doing. And then I'd find another commentator or pastor who's like, yeah, I don't think that does justice to the text. I go, oh, that sounds pretty good. I think maybe I'll go there. And so I'm going to go everywhere this morning, which is actually a bad idea when it comes to prepping sermons, but we're going to see if this will work. 
All right, here's the most generous idea possible about what is happening with this guy named Demas. The idea is that when Paul said he loves this present age, what he meant was he really has a heart for people who are trapped in this present age. He's not ready to go yet. He has ministry yet to do. I'm going to pull here from a commentator named Adam Clark. You've probably heard me mention him. Well, you have heard me mention him a lot of times before, whether you remember it or not. He's a guy that I really, really like. So I'm going to tell you straight up. He gives the most generous view of Demas that I found. And here's why. He says this means having preferred Judaism to Christianity or having loved the Jews and having sought their welfare in preference to that of Gentiles. These words are generally to be understood as signifying either the Jewish people or the system of Judaism. This is a light in which the conduct of Demas may be viewed. It could not have been the love of secular gain which had induced Demas to abandon Paul. He must have counted this cost before he became a Christian. It's not suggested or intimated that he had denied the faith, simply that he left the apostle and had gone to Thessalonica, for which this reason is given. He loved the present world. Now, if the original language, having loved, can be applied to the desire to save the souls of the Jews, and he went to Thessalonica, where they abounded, for this very purpose, then we shall find that all three people mentioned, Demas, Crescens, and Titus, One's at Thessalonica, another's at Galatia, and the third at Dalmatia, doing the work of evangelists, visiting the churches, and converting both Jews and Gentiles. This interpretation I leave to the charitable reader. So Adam Clark admits this is a charitable reading. And to be clear, it is the most charitable reading that I found. <laughs> He's the only person who goes this strongly this direction. But it, it kind of triggered something in me in that I was reading a book a year or two ago called Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus by Lois Tverberg. I think that's how you say her last name. And she had a chapter in there called Taking Your Thumb Off the Scales. And she talks about how in Jewish tradition, the rabbis would actually do a practice of looking at a scenario and trying to envision the most charitable reading they could give something. So they would sit together and they'd go, Bob, because that was a common Jewish name. Bob was seen somewhere doing this. And then they'd go, I wonder what that means. And they'd kind of explore, he's probably a terrible human being. Then they would practice, what possible readings could I give this? What might I not know? What's the most charitable way to think about what Bob did? And then they would practice that. This was actually an ongoing thing. And you could find reference to this about 200 years before Paul wrote this to Timothy. A rabbi had written, judge each person with the scales weighted in their favor. So yeah, kind of a tradition had grown. So Adam Clark's kind of trafficking in that tradition. I wonder what the best way is possibly that I can read what was going on with Demas. If Clark is true, open hand, right? Open hand. If Clark is true, if he's accurate, it makes me think of the verse Paul uses where he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That if I am here, I get to live for Christ and that's awesome. If I die, I get to go to the age to come and to my eternal reward, and that's even better. And in Clark's reading, Paul was ready for the gain, or at least he recognized it was coming whether he liked it or not. But Demas wasn't. Demas uh, still wanted to live for Christ. Now, read that as charitably as you will. That's one way to view Demas, and we'll come back to that at the end. There's a second less generous reading, and honestly, I think this is probably a more honest reading of who Demas was. I, 
I think Clark was probably over generous, though I love the way he thinks. And this would be just simply that Demas wasn't ready to die. Loving this present world didn't imply that he was greedy or materialistic or abandoned of faith. It's just like I, he was afraid of death. Uh, Albert Barnes, who wrote a commentary, says it this way. Having loved this present world does not mean necessarily that he loved the honor or wealth of the world. It means he desired to live. He was not willing to stay with Paul and subject himself to the probabilities of martyrdom. And in order to secure his life, he departed to a place of safety. That he desired to live longer, that he was unwilling to remain and risk the loss of life is indeed clear. That Paul was pained by his departure, that he felt lonely and sad is quite apparent. But I see no evidence that Demas was influenced by what are commonly called worldly feelings, or that he was led to this course by the desire of wealth, or fame, or pleasure. And the pulpit commentary would add to this, it would appear from this that Demas had not the faith or the courage to run the risk of sharing St. Paul's imminent martyrdom at Rome, but left him while he was free to do so under the pretense of an urgent call to Thessalonica, just as Mark left Paul and Barnabas. All right, so less generous reading, clearly. Still not going so far as to say that Demas abandoned the faith and was simply drawn back to what we would think of as the things of the world. But he's noticing, or he's at least noting, okay, there's a weakness in Demas. Demas was not ready to make that kind of sacrifice on behalf of Christ. And he left. There may well have been ministry that followed, but he would probably say to Adam Clark, too generous, buddy. Um, you're, you're reading a little more into that than you need to. There's a third reading that is a little more pointed and harsh, and it would focus on Paul's sense of abandonment. So if you've got notes in front of you, you can go back and look. Paul says, Demas abandoned me. And then he notes two other guys, and he says, they left me. And then there's another guy that he says, I sent him. So of those four guys, Paul only sent one, three others left, but only Demas is described as having abandoned him. And even though later Paul says, when I was on trial, everyone abandoned me, there's something about Demas that stands out. Like, Paul felt that one. That one hurt. Uh, a guy named Wust says this, Demas had not only left Paul so far as fellowship was concerned, he'd left him in a lurch also, so far as the work of the gospel was concerned. He'd been one of Paul's dependable and trusted helpers, and Paul said that he let him down. The Greek word is made up of three words, to leave, down, and in. That is, to forsake one who is in a set of circumstances that are against him. It was a cruel blow to Paul. All right, so we're, we're ramping this up as we go through. But there was something here where Paul depended on Demas. And when Demas left, it was hard, just hard because he was supposed to be there for Paul, he abandoned Paul. Uh, a guy named Gill agrees with that, but then points to something else that shows up in Scripture that gives him some hope for Demas. He says, it does not appear that Demas entirely apostatized or left the faith. He might forsake the apostle and yet not forsake Christ in his interest or make shipwreck of faith and good conscience. His faith might be right, though low, and his love sincere, though not fervent. And through a fear of persecution and loss of life, he might be tempted to leave the apostle and withdraw from Rome for his own safety, which, though it was far from being commendable in him, 
yet may be accounted for in this state of frailty and imperfection, consistent with the grace of God. And it should seem that he afterwards was delivered from this temptation. If Demas is a contraction of the word Demetrius, which it often was, I should note, then he is the same one who was commended many years later for his service in the church in 3 John. So, okay, worse, worse scenario for what was happening with Demas and Paul, but this guy says it's possible that even if he faltered and was frail, that God was still faithful and at work in him and God's grace abounded and it pulled him back into ministry and he ended well, kind of like Boromir in Lord of the Rings. The final and most sobering reading is that Demas abandoned the faith. I'll give you three quotes. Not lack of courage, but a lust for materialism seemed to be his downfall. The prospect of worldly advantage was the motive which determined Demas. No doubt the busy commercial center of Thessalonica offered many opportunities for success in business, and love of money may have been the besetting sin of this professing Christian. And then finally, while we're ready to think as well of Demas as we possibly can, this falling in love with the world is here evidently the opposite of loving the Lord's epiphany mentioned in verse 8. We covered that a couple weeks ago. Uh, that was loving the Lord's coming, if you remember us talking about that. We're compelled to believe that Demas gave up the love of that coming epiphany for the love of this present world's course. This is what cut into Paul's heart most deeply. So that, that's quite a range of ways of thinking about Demas, right? And so like I said, when I was prepping this, I'm like, who, where do I go? And all of them had, had enough people kind of weighing in on them. And I'm like, oh, okay, uh, we'll go everywhere. So this is what I'm going to try to do here. So once again, open hand issue, right? Don't die on these interpretive hills. I actually think looking at all the possibilities probably opens up to us the complexity and the richness of what it's like to do life together in church. And here's what I mean by this. Sometimes people will attack our message and our faith, and it hurts. That's Alexander attacking Paul. Sometimes people follow God away from us, and it gets lonely. That's Crescens and Titus. Not, they're the ones that Paul didn't say they abandoned me. He simply says they left. So they had somewhere they needed to be. Sometimes the cost of discipleship seems too high, and we want to be faithful, but at less cost. That's the reading of Demas, who still loves God, but he's afraid to die. Sometimes God motivates different kingdom priorities and different people, and there is a tension. So that's, if you're reading Demas as loving this age in a good way, it's just a different call in his life, and it caused tension with him and Paul. It could be all of Paul's friends leaving to evangelize that maybe for some of them felt like abandonment, but they were following God somewhere God had called them. Sometimes it feels like people abandon us, which may or may not be the right term, but it certainly feels that way, and Paul is very clear about that. And then sometimes our circumstances simply threaten to overwhelm us. That's Demas fearing death. That's even Paul here in prison. There's a threat there, feeling abandoned, feeling like he could give in to despair. And so I want us to look at each of those possibilities, because like I said, I think just these three paragraphs, they cover a huge range of experiences that we have in our life as Christians. So first one, sometimes people attack our message and our faith and it hurts. Okay, I think it's clear 
that as long as Christians live in the world, people will attack our message and our faith. In some places around the world right now, we see this unraveling in really horrible ways. People literally giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. Uh, there's, there's talk here in the United States about how there seems to be some momentum that is becoming increasingly focused on Christians and things building in a way that it's going to make it harder and harder for Christians to take a really faithful and principled stand for their faith. And I, I think that's probably true, and I think that's on par for the course with how, if you look at history, life has unfolded for 2,000 years for people who are Christians. Cultures don't tend to trend in your favor. They tend to trend away from that. So sometimes people will attack our faith and our message, and it hurts. And I will just point us toward what Paul says, basically, with Alexander the coppersmith. He doesn't say, I'll get him back, or he doesn't say, Timothy, go after him. He says, God will deal with him. God will take care of it. Vengeance is not ours to take. The Bible is clear about this. Paul says, the Lord will reward him according to his works. And so it's just a reminder to me that Paul didn't vilify Alexander or call him names he didn't seek to get revenge. He didn't do any of those things. He just said to Timothy, like, dude, watch out for Alexander, man. It's going to be hard if you're around him. Just remember, God is watching. God will require him to give an answer for what he has done. And, and that's not to suggest, because you see in Paul's life, Paul was really good at speaking boldly in defense of his faith. Paul wasn't like running away and cowardly. Uh, and, the, and the New Testament is full of admonition for us to stand strong for our faith and to speak strongly for our faith. So it's not a verse about retreating. It's just a verse ab about where our hearts are in the midst of these conversations. We don't do anything out of revenge or to get back at some people or to make them pay right now for what they're doing. I'm going to go with Paul says, the Lord will reward him according to his works. Sometimes people follow God away from us and it gets lonely. I want to make a distinction between people who actually abandon us and people who leave because God is expanding his kingdom. Sometimes it is true that people who are near and dear to us, they, they just leave. And the right word to attach to that is abandonment. But there's other times that God calls people to other places and they have to leave, and that is not abandonment. So I was thinking about my family's history. My grandpa, he and he was married at that time. So my grandpa and my grandma, they left Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, where they were part of a farming community. And my grandpa was helping his dad farm. And my grandpa, one day on his tractor, heard God clearly speak to him and say, and my grandpa wasn't a guy for whom that was a normal experience. Uh, God said, move to Alabama and start a ministry. So he did. I mean, boom, he just up and moved his whole family. I know that was hard for them. And I'm not sure how my grandpa's family experienced it. They may have experienced it as them just leaving or abandonment or something, but he was following God. What else was he to do? So then my grandma and grandpa live in Alabama. My dad grows up formative years there. He and my mom get married. They're living there. And then God calls them first to Oregon and then to Ohio. And they leave all of their siblings and their mom and dad in Alabama. And I don't know how my dad's family experienced that. It might have felt like abandonment, but what was my dad to do? 
right? God had called him. And so maybe this is a family tradition, but there's Sheila and I in Ohio with my mom and my dad and my sister, and it's already cold, right? Um, and we're like, yeah, we're moving further north, eight hours away from you guys. And I, I guess I don't know if my mom and dad and my sister, if that felt a bit like abandonment, but what was I to do? Sheila and I both felt very strongly that this is where God was moving us. Uh, okay, then the choice has been made. All right, so what I want to encourage us this morning is to think about situations where we may feel like someone has abandoned us. Let's pray for clarity. If it's actual abandonment, we, we need to grieve. We maybe need to try to figure out what's going on relationally, what happened. That might be the time for hard conversations and relational work and all kinds of stuff like that. But, but what if God's just calling people different places and it's just hard for us because we've got friends and we've got family, but, but the kingdom has to spread, right? You can't spread Eden throughout the world if you don't move. You can't go into all the nations and preach the gospel if somebody doesn't leave where they are and go into that nation and preach the gospel. I mean, this is embedded in the Great Commission. And the reality is it's going to be hard at times. So I grew up in a farming community, and we like the analogy of uh, fertilizer. Basically, a lot of farmers with cows, you pile all their poop in one place. Is this two Sundays in a row I've talked about poop? It was chickens last Sunday. Uh, okay, maybe that's our 2021 theme. So you would get these big piles, and I mean huge piles in the of, in farmland. And I, I know this because one time I was at a friend's house helping to milk cows, and it was winter, and there was this huge pile of cow poop that was frozen, and I thought it would be a good idea to climb it, and it wasn't a good idea because it was not frozen solid. And I'm just going to, yeah, we're done talking about that. So they put it in fertilizers and they spread it all over the field, right? And that's what helps the crops grow. And so the analogy we would often use in churches was, um, if you, <laughs> Christians are like manure, if you just sit in one pile, you'll stink. You got to spread out, right? And then you help the world grow. And so it wasn't the most um, compelling analogy, maybe, but it was certainly a visual one. All right, third point. Sometimes the cost of discipleship seems too high. We want to be faithful, but at less cost. So I'm just going to quote Jesus, Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 27. If you don't carry your own cross as if to your own execution, as you follow me, you can't be a part of my movement. Just imagine you want to build a tower. Wouldn't you first sit down and estimate the cost to be sure you have enough to finish what you start? If you lay the foundation and then can't afford to finish the tower, everyone will mock you. Look at that guy who started something that he couldn't finish. Or imagine a king gearing up to go to war. Wouldn't he begin by sitting down with his advisors to determine whether his 10,000 troops could defeat the opponent's 20,000 troops? And if not, he'll send a peace delegation quickly and negotiate a peace treaty. In the same way, if you want to be my disciple, it will cost you everything. Don't underestimate the cost. So I think that was already pretty clear without me adding explanation. What will it cost you? Everything. That's the cross. If we follow Jesus, if we give our lives and we commit ourselves in that way, Jesus does not ask for us something or part of something. Jesus asks for us everything up to and including our very lives. 
So for Paul, this was a physical reality. And like I noted, um, if you look at what's happening around the world globally, my understanding is that persecution of Christians is escalating in a very real physical sense. All right, so that, that is part of it. But the other part of laying down our life isn't just me going, I am willing to have my blood shed for Christ. It's me going, okay, what Paul says, every day I get up on the altar and I die daily. I offer myself every day. It's not just my physical life. It's my mental and emotional and relational life. There is something every day that calls me to martyrdom, to die to myself. That's the cost that Jesus wants us to be clear about. If we give our lives to Jesus, we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And that price gets everything. And I think what Jesus is saying here is like, if you're not willing to sign up for that, then, then don't. If you're going to sign up for it, you don't get a partial plan like Charter lets you do. I'll take this channel and that channel, et cetera. You get all the channels. It's all or nothing. Right? It's every part of our life that's going to Christ. We've got to know what we signed up for. And I want to make a note here. And uh, at some point, classes will get going again, and Message Plus will get going again, and this will be such a good Sunday to have further discussion about this in Message Plus. But I want to at least throw this idea out here for you, for you to think about. This will be incomplete idea. I want you to wrestle with it throughout the week, all right? And that's this. Let's not over-spiritualize this. And here's what I mean. I think if we're not careful, we can actually misuse this and go, okay, God has called me to sacrifice everything for him. And if we're not careful, we'll sacrifice things we ought not be sacrificing because we're actually following the own desires of our heart. Uh, God won't call us to turn our back on his known kingdom priorities for us. I'm going to give you one example of this that I think is clear in Scripture. If you're a person who's married and has children and you come to me and say, I think God is calling me to, in essence, abandon them to follow his calling for me, someone else. I'm going to say, sister or brother, you're wrong. And I'm going to point you to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, especially verses 32 to 35. Because if you choose to get married, Paul is clear, you don't have to get married. In fact, if you don't get married, you have more freedom to do things on behalf of the gospel. What's the implication? If you get married, you now have a priority that God has given and ordained for you that is going to limit the other things that you can do because God planned it that way. And that's not being disobedient to God, that's being obedient to God. So yeah, if you come to me and say, I need to abandon my family to go do the work of God, I'm going to say, no, God's not calling you to do that. You have a family. God is calling you there first. If your family can go with you into that ministry, awesome. And if they can't, you're staying home. Uh, I'll be honest. Some of the stuff I've seen the last couple of years about national figures who have fallen so badly um, and one in particular stands out, and we've talked about him before, so I'm not going to say his name again. A couple years ago, he gave an interview in which he said, functionally, my family life has fallen apart because I travel so much. Brother, you're not following the call of God at that point. You're abandoning something God has called you to do for I don't know what idol. Just going to say it. I don't know what idol. Why do I, okay, if I feel like I'm coming across passionately about this, it's because one of the things God had to convict me over in my work, even here, just at this church, and I'm not an international speaker, I'm just a dude in a church in Traverse City, 
Uh, my wife could tell you, we wrestled with this for years where I felt like it was so spiritual for me to invest all kinds of things in other places and it, in ways that I often didn't realize, but I often did. But my family in a secondary place, when actually that was God's primary calling and God's primary mission field for me, you name it, right? And that, that was a process of repentance of me having to go, no, I need to figure out what God has prioritized for me and follow those prioritizations. So I don't have a Bible for, for this, but I suspect that on the day of judgment, this is Anthony speaking, right? This is just Anthony speaking. I suspect that on the day of judgment, when I give an account for what I've done, God's first question will be, give me an account of my daughter, your wife. I'd like to hear how you stewarded her. Are you giving her back to me in better shape than I gave her to you? And I think my wife gets the same question. How did you steward your husband? I, I gave you a primary mission right there. How did it go? I love how Ken, he's told me a number of times over the years when he, people start talking about how great their life is going. And if it's, a, if it's a guy Ken's talking to, he'll just stop him and go, brother, how's your wife? Yeah, that, that's, that's going to say a lot. It's going to say a lot. If it's God who's calling you, you'll be convicted to put yourself on the altar, not others. This is, that's the phrase that by the way, that's not a Bible verse. That's just me trying to coordinate thoughts. So you, you can challenge it or wrestle with it. In fact, I'd like you to think about it. This would have been our message plus topic. What does it look like to make sure that as we follow Christ, we're constantly putting ourselves on the altar and not putting other people on the altar? Sometimes God motivates different kingdom priorities and different people, and there's tension. So Paul says a couple guys left him. Let's move away from Demas. Let's, let's just, let's put Demas in a category where he abandoned Paul. There's something going on there that's unique. Those other two guys, Paul sent, and then a fourth dude left. And, and it sounds like Paul felt like all of it was abandonment, like people are leaving him and he's lonely. Because Paul's just a guy, right? He's, he's, remember, he's writing a personal letter to Timothy. I suspect there's Paul's just kind of letting his emotions just be real and honest with Timothy. All right, but um, Paul says a couple guys left him, at, and that's hard, even though it's ministry. So here's an example of Sal or Heather are like are watching this. I've said this to Sal before, but I really like Sal and Heather. Okay, I love their family. I really wish Sal and Heather would stay here, be part of our church, because I just think they're just. Yeah, okay, so I really like Sal and Heather. Is that clear? And so what Sal and Heather are like, uh, brother, God's calling us back to the mission field. I'm like, Arr. but I'm not determining Saul and Heather's life. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not giving them their talents and their gifts and their inspiration. They don't have my calling. They have a calling God gave them. And honestly, it doesn't matter how I feel about it. They need to be faithful to God, not me. And they are. And I love watching their faithfulness to God unfold. And so um, I didn't feel abandoned if Sal and Heather are watching this, just to be clear. Uh, but I miss them. Man, I wish they were close to me so that my life could benefit. But the reality is God has called them to a place. Far be it from me to slow that down. Right? That's how, that's how the kingdom spreads into the world. Right? It's a beautiful thing to see. So the one, the one thing to note is that 
God calls people to places that might take them geographically different places. Okay. The second thing is this. Uh, if you could just look around the room real quick, just look at people for a second. All right. People sitting next to you that you just looked at, they probably have different kingdom priorities than you do. And by that, I don't mean something other than serving Jesus, right? There's these closed hand kind of kingdom priorities. I just mean they have something that God has given them a passion for or equipped them to do or place them in a situation to do that is different than what it is for you. And they're really going to feel that strongly in ways that you don't. So some of you are going to feel really strongly about certain causes, certain issues. And some of you are going to be like, hey, okay, I mean, that's on my radar, but that's not the one I'm feeling strongly about. I'm with this one. All right, I think that's the way God intends it. If we all just saw one thing, I don't think we get a well-rounded view of the heart of God for the world. I actually think if we could talk with all of us, if, if we had time that on a, on a Sunday, or we could do this once again when Message Plus starts up, I'd love to hear from everybody. What are you passionate about? I'll bet we get a different answer for everybody in the room. Which, okay, so that creates a kind of tension because every, I think as part of human nature, we all want everyone to share in our passions, Right? But the reality is that's not what God intends. He intends for this diversity of people to be unified around Christ. And then as we fellowship in this diversity of people, and I say, Tom, what are you passionate about? And Tom tells me, Becky, what are you passionate about? Becky tells me, Pam, what are you passionate about? And Pam tells me, and John and Pete, I might get five different answers and I might go, huh, I didn't even know people were passionate about that. But what I'm learning is that as God works at different people and I begin to talk with them and learn from them and absorb from them, I think I am getting a more well-rounded view of the heart and mind of God for the world. So, there, so there's tension that comes with it, once again, because I, I think we have to wrestle with, thought my, uh, thought my passion was probably the best one. Uh, it's probably the best one for you. Don't give it up. But recognize we're in this together, and we get a unified image of Christ when we see the complexity of the body. Two more quick points. Sometimes it feels like people abandon us, which may or may not be the right term, but it feels that way. And I would just note this. Paul didn't hold it against them. I mean, he acknowledged how it felt, and he might have been acknowledging a reality too, but at least he acknowledged how he felt. This is hard. This is hard. I feel abandoned. But then what does he follow that up with? It was in that moment that God's strength was clear to him. He now had no person around him to lean on. Who's left? God. It turns out God's really strong and good for leaning on. Right? It's very clear in the passage that the Lord stepped up in a mighty way, that the strength and nearness of God was abundantly clear at his greatest time of sensing like he was alone. Two things come to my mind that don't have to do with relationships, but I think it's an analogy that fits. I've mentioned this before. That I, th I think the most poignant time I've ever experienced with God was standing beside my father's grave after I helped to throw the dirt in that interred him. And it was the worst moment of my life. And it was the most precious moment I've ever experienced with God. I've never forgotten that. Uh, like, Leaning on the everlasting arms was real in a way in that moment that I had never felt before, but it was in that moment that I probably felt the most abandoned, for lack of a better term. My dad had left me. 
right? I, I talked with someone after the service last week who also told me of a time where they just, they had a profound spiritual experience with God leaving a funeral of their spouse. It was that moment at their worst that God just kind of appears at his best. So I guess my encouragement would be that if you're in a place where you're really feeling abandoned, alone, despairing, that type of thing, pray for clarity about the nearness and the strength and the presence of God. And I don't know how God will show himself to you in that moment. I would just say, pray for it, plead for it. Dear God, I'm at the end. And then watch for Emmanuel, God with us. And then finally, sometimes our circumstances threaten to overwhelm us. Paul says that God will rescue us from every trip, trap, snare, and pitfall of evil. Awesome. And then he says, and will carry us safely to his heavenly kingdom. So I would note something. Paul did not get freed from jail after he wrote, Paul, God will save us from every trip, trap, snare, and pitfall of evil. Paul died and got carried to his heavenly kingdom. It's not a commentary, I don't think, on God will make life easy. I think it's a commentary on God will be faithful. And no matter what kind of temptation or trial comes into your life, God can and will sustain you. And this takes me to something else Paul wrote in Romans 8, beginning in verse 35, because I think this is a broader paragraph uh, about what he just noted about God sustaining us and carrying us to his heavenly kingdom. And I'm going to end on this note. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we encounter death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, or height, or depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's let that hope fix our eyes and steady our hearts. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.